Our topic tonight, under the banner of truth, which is the theme for the entire week, is the truth about church leadership. I'll read to you what I was given. I won't probably touch all of them, and I certainly won't exhaust any of them. But I was given the following. Our current culture seeks to define what the church is. The religious world has responded in an effort to remain relevant to the masses of people by re redefining the church to fit the demands of the culture that it is seeking to serve. The structure of the church and its leadership is one of the targets of this cultural war. Man's ideas about the way the church is organized and led are in opposition to the instructions given in the Bible. Specifically, describe the ways which religious organizations have perverted the structure and leadership of their churches, positions, titles, training, selection, hierarchy, gender, roles, etc. What are the arguments used to justify these changes? What are the possible mo motives for these changes? Discuss the inherent problem and negative consequences of man's ideas for leadership in the church. Describe the organization that Jesus established, its structure and leadership. What are the differences between God's plan and man's plan? What are the advantages of God's plan? How might we as a congregation individuals best take a stand? I plan to address the first four of those in the first hour, and then starting at 9 o'clock, I'll begin addressing the other ones. All of them are excellent suggestions. And this is an issue because in a, a, we live in a society that continues to try to build a church for people who don't like church. And when you try to build a church for people that don't like church, you have to make some changes. But then it's no longer the church. I will say in advance that it is possible that some of my thoughts here will be uncomfortable or maybe even offensive uh, to some of you. We've got families, we've got loved ones that are engaged in various things, and we don't like to think that anyone we love is engaged in anything that's not appropriate, but that's not reality. But let us pray that the truth, not our feelings or even our desires, are what guides us. And as I enter into this discussion, I want to make what I think is a very important point. Leadership in the church does not simply reference the two positions found in the New Testament. The New Testament establishes two official leadership positions in the church, elders, sometimes called shepherds or overseers, and deacons. And we have no right to add or change offices that God has not ordained. But we find many men and women in Scripture who never held either one of those positions, elder or deacon, and yet were leaders. Priscilla and Aquila, leaders? You bet. Lydia, a leader? You bet. Dorcas, the multiple Marys, women who played key roles in getting congregations started throughout the first century. And some men, for instance, like Barnabas and Silas, we have no mention that they were elders or deacons, but were they leaders in the church? Certainly were. Most of you, most of you men will never be an elder 
or ever be a deacon. And most of you ladies will never be married to someone who is an elder or a deacon. But this is a lesson for all of us because God asks all of us to be leaders. So rather than just address the 12 people here that might end up being officers, and I don't know what the number is, but it's not the majority, I want to emphasize that this is an important lesson for all of us. To a great extent, all Christians are called to lead. Every Christian is called to be a teacher at some level because all of us are given the mandate to teach and influence others. And when you teach and influence others, you are a leader. That's why we find in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. The writer was chastising them for not becoming teachers. He was chastising them for not becoming leaders. Because teachers lead. They were not rising to the position of influence and influencing others in biblical ways. Clearly, all Christians are called to influence and teach others about Christ, and influence is what leadership is. I think it's safe to say we're all leaders. We're just not always good or good leaders. But we're always influencing somebody by watching us. Therefore, no matter your status, position, giftedness, gender, role, age, we are all to lead, be pillars in the church and influencers in the world. That is not to say that we, as I said, will all become official leaders as elders or deacons. It wouldn't be appropriate for that to occur. By definition, organizations must have organization. And God knows that very, very well. And that's why he has given us a precise and perfect structure for leadership in the church, his body. In this session, I hope to discuss what I believe to be one of the most injurious errors into which the religious world has fallen. The changing of God's pattern for the church and its leadership. If I were God, and I'm certainly not, I would tend to look down on the world and say, how dare you? So widespread have these corruptions become that it will be virtually impossible to ever totally correct them. So subtle is, it, is its encroachment that even those who deny being guilty of it, even those in so-called churches of Christ, are nonetheless victims and perpetrators of the apostate influences. Historians search in vain for the date of the birth and debate the motivation which posted this upon the unsuspecting church. And certainly these aberrations on the scene, aberrations were not a part of God's revelation or purpose, yet was suddenly on the scene exercising a corrosive influence and claiming divine sanction for its existence, intruding itself into the vocabulary and minds of those who proudly proclaim to speak where the Bible speaks and remain silent where it is silent. But brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, when the church abandons God's ordained organization and government, it ceases to be the church. 
It can still be an assembly. But it's no longer the Lord's church. Even with the sincerest of intentions, God does not need man's help in setting up church leaders, the church leadership structure. Some of the worst havoc and damage done to the church has been a direct result of totally unscriptural forms of church government and leadership. Adding offices never ordained by God, or lowering God's standards for the offices he did ordain in order to fill a position with an unqualified individual. Only a short time after the apostles left the earth, men started in earnest to adopt both secular, Roman, and Jewish concepts of rule. As a result of power-hungry religious people emerged Emerging in Christ's name, they foisted organization and structure that was totally contrary to Jesus' teaching of humility, love, and servanthood. In the little book of 3 John, we find a man that it says he wanted to have the preeminence. And that's a deadly bane in Scripture. God has provided explicit examples and instructions in his word about the formal church leadership. The classic ones, and you know this, are in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, and I don't intend to go to either one of those passages. Not that they're not important, I think you've gone over those passages, the qualifications for elders and deacons. I want to take a little bit broader look at this. The fact is, leaders are given to us by God to help protect us so we can and will grow spiritually. If we are so blessed as to have scripturally qualified elders, we should consider them nothing less than a gift from God for our good. Even though they may make us scratch our heads on occasion because they're not perfect, they're still given to us by God for our benefit. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, it says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith you should follow. In the 17th verse of Hebrews 13, the writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. You hear the last part of that verse? Let them, our leaders, lead us with joy and not with grief. How long has it been since you or I have taken the time to thank our leaders for their wise provision? Godly men in the congregation who are willing to watch out for our spiritual warfare and welfare. Do we not see the blessing we've been given in the provision of these men? To go to them and say, how can I help? Or simply a heartfelt thank you for a task that often probably, no, for a task that often does seem thankless to them. I believe the lack of godly leaders in the church today 
is one of, and I almost said the, greatest challenge of the church today. Some Christian men have reservations about aspiring to church leadership, and there's a multiplicity of reasons. You can make your list. I just jotted down a couple. Some avoid it because they simply don't want the work or the responsibility. Some of them saw their dads and granddads hold those offices and saw the stress, they saw the time commitment, and they say, no thanks. But I ask the question, is God pleased if we could, but we don't? What is the parable of the talents all about? What am I going to say in the judgment day? What are you going to say in the judgment day when God looks at you or I and says, I gave you this talent and you refuse to use it? I think sometimes men feel a tension between ambition and humility. In 1 Timothy 3.1, it does say that if a man desires the position of elder, he desires a good work. So there has to be a desire. But on the other side of that coin, in Jeremiah 45.54, Jeremiah says, Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversary on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places. On the one hand, there's to be a desire. On the other hand, there is a caution not to do it for ourselves. I believe the word, the concept of desire there in 1 Timothy 3.1 is not the desire for honor. It's not the desire for authority. It's the desire to serve the Lord, and that ought to be what motivates all of us. Part of the tension that we find in those passages may be that in the first century, when the church was being physically persecuted, maybe the leaders of the church were the first to be persecuted, or they got the brunt of the persecution. I don't know. But it was important for those men to understand and accept that. The key to spiritual leadership is serving, not being served. Moses, I think we would all say, was a leader. He was never called a leader in the Holy Scriptures. But he was called a servant. God is always searching for men and women who are willing to support them in the family for these jobs. One of my favorite, although tragic, passages in the book of Ezekiel is found in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. But let me read 29 to 31. And the people of the land had used oppression, committed robbery, and mistreated the poor and needy, and they wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I, thought, so I sought for a man among them who would make a, a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Of all the men in Israel, God couldn't find, he says, I couldn't find one that was willing to take that position. And of course, the captivity then ensued. Never doubt the impact that a small group of people can make if they have the desire to follow God's word.
In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1 and following, it says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See how and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon Israel. Once again, there wasn't anybody. It's a little bit like Abraham negotiating to find a few people, enough people in Sodom and Gomorrah that he'd, he'd spare it. And you know that story, how the number just kept going down and down and down. Leaders do have shortcomings. They're human. Moses was a terrible delegator until Jethro gave him some wise words. He was a reluctant leader. He didn't want the job. David was a murderer and an adulterer. And if I had asked you, give me the names of two people in the Old Testament that were most excellent as leaders, probably Moses and David's name would have come up multiple times. Peter was brash and hypocritical at times. If the church is to proclaim the good news, and that is our mission, leaders are needed who are authoritative, spiritual, and sacrificial. By authoritative, I mean they need to know where they're going and they need to do it with confidence. They need to be spiritual. It has to go God's way. The Old Testament is full of shepherds who were wayward. And it must also be sacrificial because that's the example and the model that Jesus gives us. J. Oswald Sanders wrote, If those who hold influence over others, which is to lead, fail to lead, toward the spiritual uplands, then surely the path to the lowlands will be well-worn. And I'm here tonight to tell you the path to the lowlands, the grass has long been worn out. It's a hard, slippery slope. And some of us, maybe, God forbid, some that we have loved, God forbid, have slid down that slope. Jesus in John 18 and 36, when he's before Pilate, says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. For now the kingdom is not from here. Jesus was making a clear distinction between his kingdom, how it was going to be organized, what it was about, and all the other earthly kingdoms. I found the term leader found three times in the Bible, in the King James, and leaders, plural, three times. And two or three of those times, it was talking about bad leaders. Most often it is presented as a servant. I believe the highest title God can give any of us is not elder, it is not deacon, it is not evangelist, it is not wife of, wife of, or wife of, it is servant. If you want to stand tall in the Lord's kingdom, that's what he's looking for. Leadership is simply influence. Yes, the formal leaders, elders and deacons, they have certain qualifications they must make as we take a, as if, when we take a look at Timothy and Titus, the passages that Paul wrote to them. Okay, before the time gets total away from me, and it appears like I'm dodging some of those questions they asked me to address, here goes. Okay? 
describe the ways in which religious organizations have perverted the structure and leadership of their churches in position, title, training, selection, hierarchy, gender roles, etc. Well, I'm going to go through this in bullet fashion. If we have time, I may open it up, but I'm not optimistic that time will allow unless you're really patient. One of the things that I think is really problematic is the use of the term minister to refer to a specific elevated person when the Bible and God wants all of his children to be ministers. This is sometimes a practical dilemma for me when I go to a hospital to visit somebody. Because right by the entrance door, you know what it's, the sign says? Clergy parking. Now, I don't know if I need a special sticker or what. I believe I'm clergy, but I believe you're clergy. So we all ought to park there. I'm not sure that's going to carry the day with whoever's monitoring that. So I usually don't park there. Not because I don't think I, that's descriptive. I just don't want my car towed. <laughs> the use of the term pastor, which is a biblical term, to refer, however, to a select one or group rather than all, than the entire eldership. I believe that devalues the eldership. And I want no part of devouring, devouring. I don't want any part of that either. <laughs> devaluing the eldership. Training. Do you get it by going to a seminary or do you get it going by going with faithful men and study? When I decided to do full-time church work about 35 years ago, and I told the place where I was working that I'd be leaving, and they want to know why, and I told them. They were very, very uh, courteous. They thought, well, that sounds good, but the, almost the first question out of their mouth is, where are you going to go to study? And I would briefly tell them the concept of how the church works, at least the, as I understand it. I've been studying since I was 12. Sometimes not as diligently as I should. Serving the church rather than serving the textbook. And there is nothing wrong with studious textbook work. It's just so sad that maybe very capable men aren't being used as they could simply because they didn't have that opportunity. I'm not in favor of it, really, because... I think one of the things that can happen is a very few professors can have undue influence on a whole bunch of people. Timothy learned by being with Paul. John Mark learned by being with Paul and undoubtedly maybe Luke. Gender. Gender as well as men in formal leadership. And we see that all of the, all the time. I believe when that occurs, if people are sincere in their thinking, they are confusing positional equality with functional identicalness. The Bible does teach there is neither male nor female, and they are both equally treasured by God. But that does not mean male and female carry out the same functions that God has given us. Donna had a responsibility in raising our family that I couldn't have filled as well as she did. I did some things that maybe she couldn't have done as well as I did. Doesn't mean we weren't equal. That has nothing to do with us. 
One of Satan's most fierce strategies in our society is the erasing of gender roles. And if I had been given Thursday night subject on the family, I would say this very same thing. When you abolish gender roles from a functional standpoint, you destroy the family and you destroy the church. Men who do not provide for their families, we're told, are worse than an infidel. And providing for our families certainly carries a financial connotation. But I believe it also, and maybe even more importantly, well, equally importantly, it carries an emotional and spiritual connotation of providing for our families. The selection process. Auditions for the pulpit. One man wrote, Neither nominating committees, nor search committees, nor boards are found in the pages of the New Testament. Amen. The pulpit ministry is not God's plan. Having ministries from the pulpit is his plan. But the church is to be a participatory organization. And I've used this example ad nauseum, so if you've heard it ad nauseum, just, just do whatever you need to do. But every fall, and we have a good football team here, when you're driving, if you happen to go by Arrowhead Stadium, you will see 75,000 people in the stands who desperately need exercise, watching 22 men on this field that desperately need rest. <laughs> and I just described most churches, because we've become a, a, a audience-oriented approach. I don't think this is a bad way to organize structurally the auditorium, but I don't like it either because what's going on right now? I'm doing the talking, you're doing the listening, and you can listen if you want, you can daydream if you want, you can whatever you want. But at least under mutual ministry, if some, we each get an opportunity if we're such, so qualified and the officers allow us up here. I want to read to you a couple of paragraphs that came from the Mission Messenger in 1960, written by a man that, well, it doesn't matter who wrote it. He just said it, I thought, quite eloquently. He's describing how it was done in the first century. And I quote, It was a taunt of the enemies of the faith once delivered that there were no philosophers or learned men to spearhead the church. They spoke in derision of the shoe cobbler, tent makers, skin dressers who carried the good news to distant lands. When the saints met for edification and worship, plain men in plain garb stood up among their fellows to exhort and comfort. The marketplace, the sea, the shop, the vineyard, and the field were all places from which lessons were taken. The hands lifted up in simple gesture were stained and blackened from daily toil blistered and calloused by hard labor at an honest trade. There was no thought of speaking for gain or of exploiting the many for the financial profit of the few. Listen to this. Every home, even the lowly hut of a slave's hovel, was a minister's home. Every such humble dwelling was a minister's study. For here a servant of God sought the means by which they might instruct his brothers and sisters or share with them 
a nugget of knowledge. The whole realm of nature constituted a library from which the untutored mind could draw lessons of life, and these lessons delivered in a homely language, destitute of the embellishments of oration and phraseology, struck home to the hearts of the listeners and inspired them to limitations. How far man's efforts have slid. I am not at all against clergy. In fact, I love the word clergy. What I am against is the separation of clergy and laity. We should all be clergy. We should all be clergy. I believe that's what God asks us to do. What are arguments used to justify these changes? What are the possible motives? Well, possible motives, that, that gets into a little bit reading the heart, but I'll, I'll make a few comments on that. Arguments for is we need to get more effective, we need to get more organized, and this is the way you do it. And nine times out of ten, if not 99 out of 100, it involves a moving toward a corporate structure of leadership. God's leadership government in the church is extremely flat. There's Christ. Over here you've got elders and deacons, and here you've got members. And the members are under the elders and deacons. They're also under Christ. That's it. It's a flat organization. It doesn't have layer upon layer. But we're, most, we're more used to hiring somebody to do our work for us. One of the classes today, and I, I forget who, which one it was. I think it was Charles, I don't know. Something about our biggest problem is our prosperity. I do believe that. I don't want us to be less prosperous. I just want us to be wise enough to handle the prosperity. Absolving one of the responsibility of doing the work himself. Audiences, becoming an audience rather than a participant. Sometimes I think the motive for moving into some of these corporate style or, or non-biblical structures is a frustration about a perceived lack of results. And I understand that because we are not always getting the results that we should. But I submit the the, the problem is not with the plan. The problem is with the execution of the plan. Discuss the inherent problems and negative consequences of man ideas for, man's ideas for leadership in the church. Well, one of them, and I mentioned this in John, 3 John, was over-dominance of one or a few people. 3 John, beginning with verse 9. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loved to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore I came, I come, and I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content at that, he himself does not receive the brethren, and forbids those who wish to put themselves, putting themselves out of the church. The Atrophies wanted to be top dog. And that's not God's idea of leadership. I've been privileged on occasion to help 
young congregations, new congregations start up and and typically people from other congregations will come there and that will make the nucleus. It is amazing how someone in a larger group, you hardly ever hear from them. You get them in a smaller group where they have a more participatory opportunity and you they'll just blossom on you. It's amazing. I've seen men give exhortations that I didn't think they had it in them. But they did. How might we as congregations and individuals best take a stand against perversions of the Lord's church structure? Well, I think probably one of the most important is simply step up to the work. Step up to the work. We believe in what we call mutual edification. Well, edify. You ever been sitting in the audience of a, a faithful congregation and someone, maybe it's happening right now, is giving an ex exhortation and you're saying, I wish we had someone polished. You and I have both heard some pretty poor exhortations. I don't mean that judgmentally, it just, where's the beef? We've got to step up. We might not be in favor of orphanage homes, but we better be in favor of taking care of the orphans. Lest we simply criticize the structure, let's step up and show that it can be done in the way God has given us the opportunity. You can't pay someone to do your spiritual work. They can augment your spiritual work, but replace it, no. And here's my rabbit trail, which has become a, a kind of a, a catchphrase on the day stations. Evangelists should not, don't do for a congregation or people what they should be doing for themselves. Because when you do, you simply enable. People need to grow. People need to develop. A true leader is likely to be one, A.W. Tozer, a true leader is likely to be one who has no desire to lead but is forced into it by an inward pressure of the Holy Spirit and the press of circumstances. Why do men accept the office of elder? Unless it's an ego trip, and that probably sometimes could happen, unless it's an ego trip, it's not one they really want. I've often thought it would be great, it'd be unscriptural, so maybe great's not the right word, if everyone in this auditorium could be an elder for a year. Think how more patient you and I would become with our leadership if the buck stopped at us. Now I know that'll never happen, and it can't happen, because we're not all qualified. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, it says, The elders who are among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that is revealed. Shepherd the flock of God. Number one, the flock is God's, not the, not the elders. The, the flock is God's. Don't do it by compulsion but do it willingly, not for financial gain, and not as lords or dictators over the flock. You know, 
when there's a wedding, and I've never been inside the bride's dressing room, but it seems to me like an awful lot of attention is given to making the bride just look a certain way. There have been times I performed weddings and someone walked down the aisle and I didn't recognize them. <laughs> and I'll never see them that way again. And neither will their poor husband. <laughs> My point is, elders are preparing the bride of Christ for that great wedding. And it requires even more important attention. And we need to be attentive to allowing them to help us get ready for that great wedding. One of the men, I'm, I, I got up here just a little bit late. So. One of the men in the Old Testament I really admire is Caleb. The reason I really admire Caleb, and I'm sure there's multiple reasons to do it, he and Joshua were the two spies that came back and gave the right report. Then, when it came time to replace Moses, Joshua was selected. Now, how do you think that made Caleb feel? I went with, jo I went with Joshua, I came back with the same honest report, and now you're picking Joshua over me? Well, in Joshua chapter 14, Caleb is now 85 years old, a time when most would probably be putting on their slippers and putting their feet up. He goes to Joshua, and there was a mountain that had not been conquered, and Caleb, 85-year-old man, says, Give me that, and I'll conquer it. And lo and behold, he does. There is not a hint in Caleb's character or psyche of feeling slighted, miffed, well, if you're going to be that way, I just quit. And yet that's human nature sometimes, isn't it? I've often wondered how Barnabas felt. Well, a great man. The first few times we see Barnabas, it's Barnabas and Paul. And then it turns for the rest of the story, Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, like Caleb, was willing to... play second fiddle but he kept on trucking. Some of you have been in orchestras, so you know what first chair, second chair is. First chair is an honor. But the person in the second or third chair needs to be just as committed to the, to the process. I remember reading an article one time, and it said, it was talking about leaders not doing it for glory. When you go to a concert and the orchestra is playing, there's one person you don't see the face of. It's the conductor. He always has his back to you unless he's a really narcissistic ego maniac <laughs> and double-jointed. <laughs> it's not for the show. It's not for the glory. I didn't clear this with my eldership, and I may be wrong. I'm just making an assumption. But if you notice on the program this week, if it had gone completely as planned, I don't think one of our elders would have been standing where I'm at the entire week. Coordinators, announcements, all delegated. Now, maybe we can't always do that, but I think that speaks very, very well of influential leadership as opposed to dictatorial leadership. Just a couple of things that sometimes come up and 
I will give you what Shane calls the best part of my lesson that starts with the words, in conclusion. <laughs> what about elders who lose their wives and their children, or their children? Are they no longer qualified? Because it does say the elder is to be the husband of one wife. Well, my best answer is we're just not told how to handle that. At least I can't find a passage, so I think judgment needs to be involved. But the man has had the experience of being a husband and has had the experience of raising children, and that doesn't go away. So I certainly would not personally insist that that man resign. I know men who feel that way, and that's fine. I mean, we all work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. There are, however, some men that if they were the only elder, I would probably urge them to resign because they don't have the personality, the psychic, and character to do it, which may tell us they shouldn't have been appointed in the first place, but they've lost that counterbalance. Can elders be removed? Yes. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 19. But be very, very careful. That is a very hazardous paths. It, it can sometimes be the essential path when sin is involved, unrepented sin. But when you destabilize a congregation by taking its leadership away from him, you need to be ready to really roll up your sleeves and work to get it back on firm ground. It often takes a couple of months to undo something that took years to develop and it will take years for it to redevelop. But if we have the right attitude, if we are patient, if we are of the right mind, I think we can avoid those things. Well, this could have been our study for the entire week. But we have other good and important topics that are being covered, so that's good, that's, that's probably better. Young men, all men, Prepare yourself to be an elder or a deacon. And if you never become an elder or a deacon, you will still benefit immensely for that preparation. Wives, support your husbands so that they can do that. One of the questions that comes up, can a wife disqualify a man for being an elder? Absolutely. She can't qualify him for it, but she can disqualify him for it. But God has given us the perfect structure. That, that's always the case. I said Sunday when I was up here, the definition of truth is whatever God thinks about anything. The definition of truth about church leadership is what God tells us. Let us spend our time executing his plan rather than modifying his plan. And I think we'll be much, much better off. We'll go, we are going to close in conclusion and extend the gospel invitation. Jesus is the absolute perfect leader. He's the only one I know that you can follow him every step of the way, 24-7, and you'll never get in trouble. Human leaders disappoint us. We've had disappointments in this congregation. You probably have in your congregation. 
But you keep on trucking. Because God's plan is perfect. If he can help anybody in any way, we have this opportunity as Tim leads us in our final song, and we stand and sing.